Hello, you're listening to Reframe Your Life, and I'm your host, Sandy Reynolds. This is episode 108, and I'm really looking forward to bringing you the two guests that will be with me today. The first one is Shelley Paxton, and Shelley is an author, speaker, and transformational coach who can best be summed up as a burnout fighter and a fire reigniter. She's rebelling for rewriting the traditional script of success, starting with her new book, Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life. Shelley spent 26 years as a highly regarded marketing and advertising executive, stewarding some of the world's most iconic brands, including Harley-Davidson, Visa, McDonald's, and AOL. In 2016, she walked away from the corporate world to become chief soul officer of her newly launched company and ultimately her life. She launched Sobatical with the mission to liberate the souls of leaders and organizations by inspiring them to embrace their greatest truth, purpose, and possibility from the inside out. As a certified professional coach, Shelley works with execs at Fortune 100 companies and fellow rebel soul individuals and entrepreneurs. She is also trained with some of the top teachers in the world, including researcher and five-time New York Times bestselling author, Brene Brown. Joining me in this interview is Patty M. Hall. Patty has been a frequent guest on Reframe Your Life. I interviewed her last week about her new memoir, Loving Large. If you didn't listen to that episode, please go back and listen to it and read her book. Patty knows about all things memoir. She helps authors shape their books and she has an incredible gift to help you pull out the story that you've been wanting to tell. I mentioned that this is episode 108, and I want to say that it is one of the most memorable episodes for me in the history of Reframe Your Life. I so enjoyed getting to know Shelley Paxton, and I've been looking forward to dropping this episode so that you could hear it and just learn along with me and Patty from Shelley on how you can begin a soulbatical lifestyle. So let's just get right to it. Welcome back, Patty, and welcome for the first time, Shelley Paxton. I'm really looking forward to today. It's going to be a great conversation, and we're happy to have you with us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. An old friend and a new friend. Exactly. An old friend and a new friend, and two old friends. So it's going to be like, who's going to get, who's going to speak first? How are we going to manage this? It's going to be great. This is going to be a lively one. Yeah. So Patty, I'm excited to have you join me for this series on memoir writing. And I want you to just jump in, you know, you know, Shelly, and I think you've probably got some good questions to start us off with. Great. I love that part. Well, Shelly, I have to give off full disclosure first. We said old friend, new friend. So full disclosure, everybody, I worked with Shelly behind the scenes on her glorious, wonderful book, Baby Soulbatical. So while I know it very well, I've never had the chance to dive into the questions I would like to ask as an outsider. So that's the fun for me today is to do that. So I get to terrorize you first. <laughs> the question. <laughs> that way, I got sweaty palms. 
<laughs> so here's one of the things I love about Soulbatical is as a memoir, which it certainly is, it's so difficult to define where you'd put it on the bookshelf and the on the store. I mean, it's as difficult to define Shelley as you are yourself and everyone gets an idea of how big your personality is and how large your message is as soon as they dive in. It's a gripping read. It steps into the personal, it steps into the business, but it even steps into the coaching space. So how did you embrace the challenge of that? I mean, so many people need to know what they're writing when they start, and you couldn't have gotten your arms around it. It is a book with many genres within it. How did that start? How did that feel? Well, I had this amazing book coach, for starters, <laughs> without whom I would still be in the fetal position on the floor on chapter one. So let's start there. <laughs> in all honesty, you know that to be true. And I want everybody to know how fabulous you are. And um, no, you know, second to that, because that truly was a piece of it, I, I had no idea what this was going to be when I started writing it. As you know, I got thrust into this process and I was like, I need help. I need help defining this thing. And, and I think what's so beautiful, and I love how you kept that question, what came out of me are all of the dimensions and facets of me. And this book is so much about being, right? It's me moving from the doing to the being. And as I was being more myself, more authentic, more courageous, more on purpose, it was revealing more layers of who I am and how I want to show up in the world. And so that's really where it came from. So I would say it all started with, one, some really good provocation from you so that I could go really deep and reconnect with myself. And then as that started to come out, really owning instead of disowning all of the pieces of who I am. Right, right. That, and that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Is that the book taught you, but you learned yourself through the process of writing. And that's really self-evident. I mean, your stories are hilarious, but the idea that you had to move from corporate to soulbatical takes us from business into your personal life and that examination. And that leaving corporate was your reframe, right? You reframed your life by leaving corporate, but how did the book play a part in you understanding your own reframe? Oh, this book has been my greatest teacher. I think it's two things. It's been my greatest teacher and my greatest healer. And maybe the third is my greatest connector. Really like by being vulnerable and putting myself out there it has so deeply connected me to people who I didn't even know needed to hear the story, needed to know that somebody else was out there carrying the torch, like, oh my God, I'm not alone. And so, and I felt, as you know, I felt so alone when I left Harley and it was, I spent a lot of the time crying. I don't know if I'm exactly answering the question right, but I'm going to keep going with what's coming up from my, my gut. But I spent a lot of the time crying and drinking wine, <laughs> trying to excavate these memories. And it was, um, man, it was such a powerful teacher. It helped me go deeper into who I am. And like I said earlier, how I want to show up. It was an absolute reframe for me in terms of my identity, 
right? A big part of this story, well, we call it part memoir, part manifesto, part interactive guide. So that ties to the question you asked me earlier. A big part of this was me wrestling with my identity because I had no idea when I stepped out of the corporate world for that reframe, which by the way, I love it. And I just love how this is the the name of the podcast. Um, I had no idea how intrinsically tied to my identity was to big titles and money and external validation and accolades. It wasn't inside. It was all outside. And the big pivot for me and the reframe for me was values over validation. And I think the whole book is like, that is one of the many threads through the book was me really understanding my inherent worth, my identity as a badass woman who, you know, from the inside out and really owning that. And it was hard. And I gave a presentation the other day. And one of the things that was replayed back to me more often than anything else was me talking about how, you know, I've served all of these iconic brands in my career. So corporate life was me behind McDonald's and Visa and AOL back in the day. And then more recently, Harley Davidson. And I was stewarding these, you know, iconic global brands. It's what I did. And it never once dawned on me that the most iconic brand I could steward was Shelly Paxton. I love that. I think that's a a great segue into the question I want to ask you, which was how did you get to that place? So a lot of our listeners might not know your story. And I'm curious to know what was the catalyst in your life that led you to doing the reframe that that kind of pushed you that final little bit into recognizing that you needed to reframe your life? Yes, I love this question, because I think everybody can relate to this on some level. And so I'll share a little snippet of my story to answer the question. But I want to say this first, this idea that, you know, when we get start living out of alignment and we're disconnected with our soul or that little voice inside of us, you know, it's trying to whisper and get our attention. And then it's kind of shouting and getting our attention in some way, shape or form. And if we're still not listening, it's going to take a two by four and it's going to whack us in the solar plexus. And that is exactly what happened to me. What happened to me in hindsight, I can see all of the places in my life. And I write about these in the book where I was, making decisions that were completely out of alignment. I was shooting all over myself, as I say in the book. It was like, I should do that. You know, I should be this person. I should follow that path. I was doing things out of obligation and guilt and sort of not because it was what I wanted to do and what I wanted to create in the world. And so each and every time as I look back, the universe was sending me a message. My body was sending me a message. I had crazy illness and an epic divorce. And I still continue to, you know, soldier ahead. And then I'm five years, five and a half years into my six and a half years at Harley Davidson, you know, chief marketing officer of Harley Davidson, sexiest, coolest role on the planet for a marketer. Like it really doesn't get any better. Talk about being at the peak of your game. And yet, 
I was feeling like I had ticked all the boxes of success on the outside and I was feeling this emptiness on the inside, like I was dying a little. And I still wasn't paying attention because I was like, yeah, but people would give a limb to be in this plate, in this position that I'm in right now. And I've worked, I've spent at that time, 25 years, a quarter of a century investing. It felt like sunk cost to me to use a business term, right? Investing in this. So what happened? The universe was like, you got to get woke girl and literally started ripping me out of my sleep in the middle of the night. For the last year that I was at Harley, this was the, this was the pivotal moment for me. I was ripped out of my sleep every single night, about well, five nights a week, after seeing the exact same nightmare over and over and over again. And I would wake up drenched, sweating, crying, not able to get back to sleep and really struggling to understand like, what's going on here? And in the universe, not, not to yeah, interrupt, but on yeah. that dream, can, if I can mind that dream a little, the universe is so crafty because it got you where it hurts, right? It didn't make you have nightmares about boardroom meetings. It got to you around your dog, right? Like your love of your life. It got to you around your dog, which was so pivotal for me. And I love that it's going to hit you with the two by four. I mean, your dreams, your nightmares about not being able to save your dog or having abandoned your dog or in some way neglected your dog which you can speak to the symbolism of but i that was really meaningful for me is that that's your solar plexus right yeah you you're exactly right and and you really helped me mine this one i'm getting goosebumps even talking about it the yeah and and just for those who haven't read the book what Patty just described, I was, I was carried through on this journey every time I saw this nightmare. And it was like a force was pulling me into a dark room, a room I had never been in. It was like soulless and windowless and chilly. And there was always this little utility closet on the other side of the room with like this barely flickering light. And every time I was pulled and forced to open this door, I would find laying on the floor, like almost immobile. My dog who had passed away, like my fur baby, I don't have children. He was my absolute fur baby. He had passed away at the, the end as our divorce was coming to a close, which was about six years prior to the moment where I was having this nightmare. And what I'm discovering in the nightmare is that he's alive, but he's barely alive. He's malnourished and neglected and longing for attention. And what I ultimately was able to realize months later after I went to a doctor and I started meditation for the first time ever and I started to sit still and connect with that little voice inside is I realized that my little fur baby Mocha was a proxy for my soul. And my soul was crying out. I kept seeing four messages so clearly, acknowledge me, listen to me, love me, nurture me. And I was just like, who talk about a two by four mm -hmm. that took my breath away when I realized that that was my soul crying out like enough is enough. Stop this, tune in, listen, or we're not going to get much further. That's a pretty dramatic catalyst to get your attention and to start you on the journey. So just walk us through like in kind of a high level. So you realize you recognize what the message of the dream is. And then what did you do? 
Was it yeah. right after? Or were these things happening kind of like in my life, sometimes things are happening simultaneously. It's hard to, they're not so chronological all the time. Yeah, it was. Um, so let's say I was having the nightmare for the last year that I was at Harley. It literally didn't end until the day I walked away from Harley. Wow. But there was about a six month period to answer your question. So I would say the first three or four months I was having this, my strategy for dealing with it was drinking a lot of wine before I went to bed at night to try to incapacitate this nightmare. So it was not a helpful strategy, right? So instead I was like incapacitating myself. And then I started to realize I needed help. And that's when I went to a doctor. That's when I started meditating. That's when the true meaning of this became clear. And I realized that it was time for me. Like I, I realized how out of alignment I was living and that I wasn't living my truth. And that even though this is a cool, sexy job on the outside, it isn't my calling. Because if it was my calling, I'd be waking up just fueled and fulfilled every single day. But instead, I'm just waking up feeling like, is this all there is? Like I climbed this corporate mountain and I'm like disappointed. So I knew I had a responsibility to myself and I call it investing in the possibility of my future self. Mm -hmm. I decided at that point through some work with a coach, I had a coach at the time who was a significant influence on me and really helped me through this challenging period. And I also had an amazing financial advisor, both of whom I call out in the book. And my financial advisor, Dominic, had been working with me right after the divorce. So the divorce happened right before I went to Harley or was finalized before I went to Harley. And I said, I want to work with you. Can we do explicit language on this? Or yes. Yes. Okay, yes, fine. please. <laughs> Good, then you can leave that part in. I just want to make sure the rebel asking the question. That's funny. Um, but so I was working with Dominic to create what I called my fuck you fund. So when I left, when I left, when I went to Harley, I was like, I want to create a cushion in my life because my, my divorce was financially devastating for me. I was the breadwinner in the family. So I said, I want to create this cushion that is a fuck you to my ex-husband and everything that just happened. And it's a fuck you to anything less than total fulfillment in my life in the future. And then I made this decision to go to Harley, which I knew would help make me whole again financially. I, I also, Harley was my kind of like, my announcement like that the badass rebel Shelly Paxton was back in the world, right? Right. And so, so it very explicit, I guess very, you know, specifically I had this fuck you fun and I was like, you know what? Now's my time. I'm going to tap into that so I can take some time off because at the time I really believed that I had to leave my job in order to find myself. Mm -hmm. And now after this three and a half plus years, I realized that sabbatical isn't about leaving your job at all. Right. But it's so clear that I had to go on this journey to discover what it really meant to live more authentically and courageously and purposefully to kind of blaze this trail and share with others and be a lighthouse for others. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because a lot of people don't, they have this uh, awakening and then they stall on it. And I'm, I don't know if in your coaching, you probably encounter this. I, I do a lot of work specifically with women. And 
so they they kind of come to this edge of knowing they need to or they you know what's deepest in them is calling them to a huge change in their life and then they back up away from it because they don't have the fun they don't they just think about all of the the reasons why it's not practical and all of the reasons why it would hurt people or all of those fears surface so I'm curious, just from your perspective, how do you push people over the edge? Yeah. It's, <laughs> That's a nice I, expression. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. In such a gentle way. <laughs> Boot um, in butt. I, I experienced, like, in, in, in Sandy, you know, so I have a lot of uh, female clients. I would say the majority of my practice is women as well. And I faced the exact same thing. So a lot of times, you know, people come to me because they know my journey. They know my story. It's inspiring. And they want somebody, like I say at the beginning of my book, just to put an arm around them and say, I got you. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to serve you. I'm definitely going to push your edges, but I got you. And this, you can do this because I'm on the other side. You can get through and you, you and I both know what's in between us and everything we want is fear. Mm -hmm. And so what I work with, you know, myself every day and all of my clients is to turn that, convert that fear into fuel, right? Convert that. that energy. Fear is a, another kind of energy. And to convert that into fuel, convert that into energy that is forward momentum and just, and just, you know, I, here's one of my favorite things just came up. Um, I say to myself and my clients, every badass accomplishment is a series of tiny steps. And if we can realize that we start catalyzing that fear and then we just take one baby step. And then one more big step. And then we start to see the synchronicities and the doors and the portals opening and the universe delivering for us. But man, there's a lot of trust and surrender involved, as you well know. Right. And, and I was hoping, and maybe Sandy, I can nudge you over there, is that how do we convince ourselves when we first have to find the courage? How do we convince ourselves that the, what's at stake is big enough? And I think we're talking about soul. And this is much more um, Sandy's purview than mine, but the idea that your soul is neglected, that that is big enough for us to get courageous around. How do you tap into that? How do you, and Sandy, you're much, much better at this mm. than I am, but how do you tap into what your soul needs? I think the, the, not I think, I know. The first step is getting out of the busyness and the distraction and the numbing and the place where I was too and into the connecting, sitting still, being quiet, listening to that little voice. I think what, you know, when I look around at our culture and it's, you know, we're talking in the midst of this pandemic and one of the gifts, I believe, of this pandemic that we're in is that it's forcing us to reconnect with ourselves and what matters most to us in our lives and what we want more of. So the first step is that stillness, that silence, that reconnection, because like me, I'm guessing most people don't even know, like aren't listening to that little voice. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I was basically numbing it telling it to shut up. It was like everything it was trying to tell me felt like an inconvenient truth. 
And so that's the first step is really, really tuning in to what is that message. And there's a question in the book, and it's one that I, I often ask my clients, you know, if you continue to live the way you're living now for another three years, five years, 10 years, you pick the timeline, are you moving closer to who you want to become or further away? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just, and I, it's ooh. interesting you brought up the, this pandemic because I, I felt like it, it was a bit of a window for us. You know, it was a, a time when life isn't what it's been. And I've noticed as well, I've been thinking that, you know, how we show up for this is pretty well how we show up for everything in our lives, because there is, at least in Canada, I can only speak for where I am there, you know, uh, alcohol sales are through the roof. And uh, people are shopping like crazy online, like they can't keep up with deliveries. And it feels like people are numbing harder. You know, people are even baking bread here. Like you can't even get yeast in the grocery store. Like that's how bad it is. (laughs) People are baking bread to numb. Global or at least North American trends because same thing in the U.S. 100%. All, all of the things that have been stripped away, we're replacing them with other things because there's still this desire to numb and to not listen to that voice inside. I think that there, you know, this is just my philosophical thinking, there may be a second wave of this, they're saying in the fall. So, you know, we'll get back to socializing, socializing again, and then we'll be back into some sort of lockdown mode again. And I think that's when people may have a deeper opportunity now to revisit and say, okay, it's almost like, I don't know if you've heard of Saturn returning, but it's almost like the idea of the second Saturn returning. That'll be the fall. You know, you missed it the first time. We're going to cycle back through it again. Let's pay attention now. Here's your chance, dummies. Yes. Well, yeah, I, who you and I are so on the same wavelength. I love it. I love everything you just said. And I've been, I've done a couple of um, virtual communities and presentations. And the one question I keep asking is, what is one aspect of our old world that you don't want to bring into our new world? Our old chapter, new chapter, old normal, new normal, however you're defining it. I don't like normal so much. I even say that in the book. I'm like, what the hell is normal? (laughs) But that's, I think, really important for us to tune in. I would encourage us now versus later because I think a lot of us are having insights and epiphanies around what really matters and what we want more of and less of in our lives. So I would encourage everybody who's listening to this to say, what is one aspect of quote unquote normal that you don't want to return? Because it's up to us to create and shape how we choose to come out of this. I think that's so powerful for us to, yeah, there's a lot of stuff we can't control, but there's a lot that we can. And there's a, it, and a lot of it is choice. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, so I think the, the other piece of it for me is um, how do we want to consciously grow during this period, whether it's in phase one or phase two, you know, whether it's now or when Saturn returns. I agree. I think there's going to be probably multiple waves of this. And what I would encourage everybody to think about is like, you know what? We know from our own experience and we know from history, crisis always comes to teach us something. 
there's always a gift in it. And we typically see that gift or understand that gift in the rear view mirror. And I think you know, that the, the less, what, what's your lesson? Like right the second. Yeah. Right what's your lesson right now? Totally. In this moment, what is your lesson? What are, what intention are you setting to grow through this? Because I think we can embrace conscious growth in terms of things we want to learn or maybe push ourselves a little further. Like I've been trying to be out there more, be on lives, be, get my message into the world, show up with my presence. And, and I've been doing it. And it's been like pushing my own edges throughout this pandemic. And it feels good because I'm connecting with so many people. And if I were only cocooning in my house, which of course I'm cocooning on some level, but if I were hiding, I wouldn't have that opportunity and I wouldn't have the connection and just the amazing dialogues that I'm, I'm able to have. So I challenge everybody to say, what is the lesson? What do you want to learn? How do you want to push your own edges in this time of crisis and growth? I think your book is a connector in that way. And something that fascinates me, and I think this goes into you personally, as well as your philosophy, because every time you open your mouth, I'm so inspired. But I love that although you show your story and you coach us, you don't prescribe an outcome. Just like COVID-19 isn't prescribing an outcome for us. It's choice, isn't it? And so, I mean, I, I loved working together and learning from you that it's not about quitting your job. It's not about leaving your husband. It's not about blowing up friendships or making those drastic changes. And you said baby steps, but it is following this meandering path. The breadcrumbs that are left by our soul are our need. And I hope if we tap into that now, I, I think that that's why your book is a book for this time is we don't quite know where we're going to land and the destination doesn't have to be fixed. You're not prescribing a destination. Soul badical isn't a, take a year off and never go back to your old life. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of living. It's a choosing. It's a listening to a, a messenger we haven't heard before. And I think it's yeah. a book for this time. Mm-hmm. It is. And while well, you've been on this, on this bumpy ride with me and you know that it's like, <laughs> My book baby is going to be four months old this week. Like the the week we're having this conversation, which is crazy because it feels like it dropped four years ago. And and because of the way like time is warped in this lockdown limbo that we're in, right? Lockdown limbo. I like it. I remember feeling devastated when we all went into lockdown and my book launches. I mean, Patty, you relate to this so well. Like book launches were canceled. Events were canceled. All the things. And I spent a couple days just feeling devastated by it. And then I stepped back and I think you and I were even talking about it. I was like, no, wait a second. This is divine timing. My book is out at the exact right time. It is exactly where it's meant to be. It's just happening in a different way than I ever imagined. But this message is what people need right now. And I've been saying, we're all on sabbatical. You know, not essential workers. Like, I don't want to diminish or belittle, like, the work that is being done out there, nor how scary this all is for all of us. But for those of us who are locked, you know, in lockdown in our homes, it, there is an opportunity for reflection and rediscovering and resetting that is really beautiful. And I guess to get to the heart of your question, I, yeah, I, sabbatical is a way of being. 
And I like to say that it's, there, there are as many flavors of sabbatical as there are humans on this planet. And I didn't know that when I first started this journey. I was like, I'm just doing this for me and I'm feeling into it and I'm honoring my own soul. Like our soul is the essence of who we are. It's, it's limitless. It's limitless. And it's, there's so much beauty and truth if we're willing to face it. And so that's why it's going to look different for each and every one of us, because what my soul says versus what yours says versus what Sandy says versus anybody who's listening to this, they're going to be different messages and different truths. So how you're showing up, you know, one of, one of the lines I, I, I remember, even when I wrote this and I presented it to you, I think as a rebel truth before it became a thread in the book, I was like, holy shit, Patty, like I discovered like the gem, the, the, like the crux of this book is authenticity is the truest form of rebellion. Mm -hmm. Lovely, that, gorgeous. Yeah, and I suddenly was like, that's it. So that's why there are so many flavors of sabbatical because the question is, what do you want to rebel for? And my whole, I've been on this whole rebel leadership thing lately. And, you know, I, if anybody, if you take nothing else away from this conversation, take away that sabbatical is about rebelling for who you are, what you want, and the impact you want to have in the world. I you know, it, make, it makes me want to do more with my life, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and I, I have to say this points directly to something Sandy's been working on. So Sandy has done major pivots, but she's literally working on rebelling at the level of the book that she's writing uh, about disappointing more people. I mean, what's more rebellious than saying no or letting folks down? Aren't we all wired? Sandy, maybe you can speak more about your book because yeah. you are equally productive writers, by the way. You guys are prolific writers. Well, when I read your book, I thought, you already said this, we're very similar. I actually have the domain soul-centered living and oh. I put together a course called soul-centered living to help people figure out what their values are and then align their life to them. So I was reading your book and I was like, totally kindred spirits for sure. Yes. That's and, so cool. I'm checking that out by the way. Oh, and San yeah, Sandy's too. a rebel in some other ways. Yes. I yes, I, I am. But there were two things I wanted to touch on, but I'll come back to the second one in a minute. I'll just go with this. I'm working on a book called Disappoint More People. And it's similar in your book. I think it's still in the, I'm still in the writing stage of it. It's um, to help people get over people pleasing and the need to be liked in their life. Because I think that's been one of my greatest barriers in really ha living from my soul mm. is putting myself first and seeing like when you wrote about I wrote it down about um, living by your values instead of validation I think that's exactly oh. what people pleasing is the root of it is wanting to be liked wanting to be affirmed wanting to be loved and so we choose to put other people's needs ahead of our own so that and then I'll segue into the question I wanted to ask because I think it it leads to it quite nicely is one of the places that you didn't seem to struggle which I applaud because it's something I've had to learn was investing in yourself just having that fund because I think a lot of us who struggle with people pleasing and in the family dynamics we might or systems that we're a part of we don't like to invest in ourselves and I just want you to just talk about that 
Oh, there's so much juiciness in everything you just said. Can I start with Disappoint More People is an amazing title and I cannot wait to read this book. So let's just start there. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. Amen. I want that mantra like all over my house. <laughs> it's a great so, one. Yes. More of that. You yeah. know, I, I struggled with people pleasing. I talk about it in the book too. It's like, I was this strange combination of like, you know, in Gretchen Rubin's Four Tendencies, I always had this tension between being a rebel and being an obliger. An obliger yeah. is basically a people pleaser. Yeah. Sure. And so it was constantly, and I talk about this, this um, uh, like almost alter ego that I had called my identity in the book. That was basically my people pleasing alter ego, where it's like, you know, well, why wouldn't you just do the thing that your parents want you to do? Why wouldn't you just... <laughs> you know, put your work before yourself. Why wouldn't you? Always these why questions, which were me bending over backwards and looking for that validation. So like most of us, I learned the hard way too, because I burnt myself out. I was on somebody else's path. When I woke up, I realized basically I was living my dad's dream, not mine. So I just wanted to say all of that to just say, oh, another kind of like soul connection there because I feel you so deeply and I think there are so many of us and I can't wait for the world to hear that. Um, remind me of the second half of the question. I just wanted you to talk about how in your life you address that people pleasing and that fear of disappointing other people, how you made the shift really from um, needing validation to finding, being able to align with your values. Yeah. Well, it was, this was part of, I don't want to make this sound easy because this is hard, hard work as I know we all know. And, you know, it was um, part of my journey was really going in deep inside to do the inner work, to get clear on my identity, my own inherent worth, this idea that self-worth trumps net worth every day of the week um and and really do like i am exercises with myself like i am not i am not these titles and these accolades and all of these mm -hmm. things like i am my essence and so i did a lot of that kind of work and i go through that work in the book as well mm -hmm. just to give people a sense for um what i did and that or you know how i worked through some of this and honestly none of these things go away. We're humans. Right. We know this as yeah. coaches. We know this as humans. I'm doing I'm continuing to do this work all the time. The work of being versus doing the work of really connecting with my essence every day. And, and so, so the, the second piece of it for me was getting really clear on what my values are. So I realized that I had gone all of these many years. By the way, I was doing this work when I was 46 years old. And I'm realizing that I had sort of evaded myself for a very long time. And I had never sat down to get clear on my top two to three values that are the lens right. through which I create everything in my life. And so I talk about this in the book. And when I sat down and I did that work, I mean, it's really easy to do, you know, take a list of like 10 or 15 values and say, these are my values, but it's really hard to say, these are the top two to three values that drive everything in my life. And for me, they're freedom, authenticity, and courage. 
And when I got clear on those things, I started to get really clear that the, on the only validation I was seeking was from the inside out, not the outside in. And I just reconnected and, and looked at everything through that lens. And I still do. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean it's easy. I definitely backslide at times, but sure. man, it makes it so clear. Did, was that relevant as a writer? Um, so I, I jotted down sort of bits and pieces, so I hope I don't misstate it, sort of inner values over external validation. And as writers, we get caught in this, don't we? The creeping in of the audience and then the staying true to what we're writing. And then we get concerned about what will the audience think and what will, how will this read to my former coworkers? How will this read to my family, my besties? Uh, do I sound like I'm entitled? Do I sound um, pathetic? Do I sound uh, like a victim? And how did you stay true to that? Or was part of the writing also a discovery that if external validation can't be pressed aside, we won't be true on the page. We won't be authentic on the page. Is that, or am I just getting maybe too meta on this? But it no, seems like no, the writing no. process requires us to live your message. Yeah, I think you, you said this to me very early on in the writing process, but getting super clear on who are you writing to? And I got super, super clear that I was basically writing a love letter to myself. Uh, That's lovely. That's lovely. And it was the way that I stayed true to myself because you're right. I mean, and I had these moments and you had to coach me through these moments where I was just like, oh, this is so raw and it's so vulnerable and it's so scary. And it still is. Like I, I, some days I look at this book sitting on, sitting on my shelf and I'm like, holy (laughs) shit. Like my whole bare naked soul is out in the world. I also am super clear that that is true to my values. That is what freedom, authenticity, and courage look like. That is what plain big looks like because I can't have this impact on the world if I'm not willing to go there myself. That's it. I mean, that's it, right? It's, yeah. And there's the, there's the writer's thing. Sandy, maybe you can go into this, is that had you not gone through the challenge of learning that what you needed to do to stay authentic to you was disappoint more people, and I'd love for you to riff on that. Yeah. If you hadn't learned that, would you have anything to say? Would we have the pithy discoveries that we have to say as writers, we, and every day you come to the page, right? We get, re, we get tested by this again, is if I'm writing for sales or if I'm writing for a beautiful cover or my publisher or my, I don't know, my business goals, you won't put the good stuff on the page that really breaks people open. Right. So for me, that becoming aware of the value of needing to be liked was very um, pivotal for me. So when I went, I went back to school in my fifties and did an MA in leadership. And one of the things we had to do was a values assessment where it was through an organization called Barrett's values. And they plot your values on a diagram, a lot like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. And so when my values came back, so you had to like identify your values, then do this assessment and then see where, how self-aware you were really. So when my assessment came back, I had all the freedom, you know, all the things very similar, you know, that I had identified, but there was one empty, like it was a circle that wasn't filled in on the assessment. It's like 
branded in my brain, like burned into my brain. And it said potential, potentially limiting value of wanting to be liked. Yeah. Right. Like I just sat there looking at it like, Oh, just there I am. (laughs) Never never would have identified that as a value, but the questions on this assessment picked it up. And, and then I started seeing it everywhere, everywhere. Like everything I did, I started seeing, am I doing that because I want to do it? Or am I doing that because I want to be liked? Or that's, I know that's how I will succeed or be successful yeah. on yeah. somebody else's terms and somebody else's, you know, um, criteria of what I should be like. So that was, yeah, that was a pivotal point for me. And that's when I started to really do a deep dive into people pleasing and understanding and reading about it and, and through reading memoirs, seeing that this is a, a big part of, especially a woman's journey, the heroine's sure. journey mm-hmm. is to identify those relationships that hold you back, that you are stuck in that conflict between being who you are and being who they want you to be. And I, I think that's, uh, I think men experience that as well. I think women can often get really locked down there though. I don't know your thoughts on that, Shelley. <laughs> 100%. I, oh, I love the assessment you just described. I'm like, that is so powerful. Like I felt that when you said that, I'm like, oh yes, had I taken a similar assessment, it would have said the exact same thing. Um, yeah, we get trapped there. I was trapped there for 26 years. And, uh, you know, there's no doubt in my mind, like one, I, my journey, I have zero regrets because that the, the career that I created, like so much good fortune, so much privilege, so much that I learned. It took me around the world. It introduced me to my, you know, my then husband. It, it, it just, you know, it helped me find myself ultimately. So, you know, that is really beautiful in and of itself, but I was stuck there for a long time because I was totally in that, like I was doing corporate America or corporate, you know, corporate period my way. So I was like, well, I'm going to stay on the traditional path, but do it with a rebel edge. So I'm going to go to Istanbul and I'm going to go to Shanghai and I'm going to work for these badass brands and I'm going to do all those things. Meanwhile, I'm still people pleasing. Right. I'm still absolutely like one of the big shoulds in my life that I talk about that is ultimately just people pleasing was I should make personal sacrifices for my work because I thought if I didn't and I didn't and I bent over backwards, I was going to be discovered as an imposter. They were going to tell me like, oh yeah, well you, you aren't worthy. We always kind of thought you weren't worthy. And I had this loop. I had this narrative in my head for a long, long time. So I, I relate 100%. Like we put ourselves in these shackles. Mm -hmm. No one else puts us in these shackles. Yeah. Thank you. And that's a message that Shelly has coached me back on is that we become so loyal to 
this inner dialogue, don't we? We become so loyal to the script that at the deepest possible level, we're not brave enough to question it because it's written from the shoulds. And sure, it can go back to childhood. It can go back to early corporate. It goes back to your father, my mother, Sandy's family, everyone's. But why are we at the deepest level not courageous enough to question our self-talk? And because yeah. those are the, as you call them, the shackles of should. Is that what you call them? And that's really what it is. And I think every woman listening to this, I can't speak to men um, personally because I can't live their life, but those shackles of should, I mean, we have the key to unlock those. Mm -hmm. And I think books help us, don't they? The other thing that during COVID-19 that people are consuming more of than, than ever before, books. And yes. I'd be so interested to see what kind of books. Is it you know, is it memoir self-help? Is it this glorious, wonderful fiction that doesn't relate to anything? Is it historical fiction? I'll be really interested to see what people are grasping at for that numbing that we opened the podcast, the episode with today. Is that, is that what it is? Because we'll do anything to not question our inner voice. Because you know what the inner voice of early COVID lockdown was? Should. Should write a book. Should clean my house. Should purge my closets. When as you said, stillness. Stillness is what we should do to listen to our soul. I love that so much about Soulbatical. Is it reminds me, it actually guilts me every time I see the book that I need to slow down the busyness. It's like my, it's like a talisman. Hmm. It is. Well, and I think that's the message, right? Slow down, right? And this is, I, I believe that is one of the gifts that we're being given in this moment in time is the gift of slowing down. And I know for some people, it's felt like our lives have sped up. Some of us are very busy. I feel very busy and I'm intentionally slowing myself down. I'm intentionally taking time off and creating space because I feel like I was getting caught up in the busyness cycle. And busyness is for me, it's actually been one of my greatest addictions. I was addicted to busyness. And I fall back into that cycle quite easily. And it's easy to busy ourselves with the housework and the clients and the this and the that. But the hard thing to do, the courageous thing to do is to create that space for right. slowing down and listening. So do you think people are as afraid of the questioning as they are the slowdown? Because isn't the busyness how we do our greatest avoidance? I mean... Let's face it, stillness is not something that appeals to most people, right? We've been wired by the last decade and smartphones and corporate calendars and everything else to speed up, to do more. I think, I think we're afraid of what we'll find if we slow down and we aren't productive. Yeah. What if well, we can't love ourselves when we're not busy? Yeah, well, it's one of my, of course, we're, we're, we're petrified of what, what might come up if we slow down. One of my favorite coaching questions is, what are you pretending not to know? Oh, I love that. <laughs> it's now my favorite coaching question, too. <laughs> yeah, and it's now the one I least want to answer. Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. I have to go journal now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Because, Thanks, I mean, Shelley. boy. That is, that is a question that we can ask ourselves like for the rest of our lives, but it's so powerful because we know we're just avoiding the knowing. Yes. Yeah, kind of like, exactly. I, that's what Glennon Doyle in her, in Untamed, her most recent memoir, you know, she says knowing with a capital K and I'm like, yes, that's what it is. It's the knowing. We're yes. avoiding the knowing. Yes. Yeah. We could talk 
probably for another two hours and just yes. warming up, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to wrap up because I, I know that um, our time is running out. We have some closing questions for you. And then at the end of those questions, maybe you can um, let us let everyone know how they can get your book, where they can reach you and what work you're doing and all of the, the stuff that would be helpful for the people listening to the podcast. So I see the first question here is mine. I'm going to ask it. And so they're just quick. You don't have to talk a lot about them, but the first one is what's your favorite memoir? You can't say Patty's. Right you can't now. say Glennon. You can't, you can't say Glennon Doyle now. Oh, <laughs> okay. So um, Becoming by Michelle Obama. Ah, okay. And if your, if your book could have a spirit animal, what would it be? A horse. Because horses are only about being. That's mm -hmm. how they show up in the world. That's beautiful. Can you describe your writing process in a single word? <laughs> Tortured. <laughs> what was word. it? Tortured. 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 I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how about I'll do this one. If your book could talk, what would it tell you? Tell you the right, the author. Mm. I'm really proud of you. Oh, oh, that's wonderful. I love that. Ooh, that well, made me emotional. Ooh. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. What yeah. will your next book be called? <laughs> Patty and I are talking about this. Oh, you heard it here, folks. Well, there are many options, but I'm being called in the direction of something around the soul of business, the, mm. this idea of rebel leadership and where that can take us and rebelling for, you know, leadership and culture that, that puts, is more wholehearted and courageous and puts humans first. Beautiful. Needed. Needed for sure. Yeah. Okay. So like just wrap up now with telling um, your website, where you hang out on social media and what you're working on that you think would be great for people to connect with you about. Woo. Okay. So my website is soulbatical.com. That's with soulbaticals with two B's and one T. Um, you can get the book, Soulbatical, A Corporate Rebel's Guide to Finding Your Best Life, uh, anywhere where books are sold. Um, so I'll say Amazon is the easiest, but please, if you can, find a way to support your indie booksellers. If you're in the States, I don't think this works in Canada yet. I'm hoping that it will soon. You can go to bookshop.org, and it's a way that the major publishers are coming together to help support indie bookshops during this time. So that's one of my favorite ways to get books these days. Um, social media you can find me my playground is Instagram it's my favorite place to play so at soulbatical is my handle and um, LinkedIn is probably the second place I play most often so Shelly Paxton on LinkedIn and what am I up to oh well I'm already starting to think about the experiences I want to create in 2021 when we can all come back together and the cool retreats where we can just get away and do some of this 
deep work together. So read the book this year. And then if you want to follow me, sign up for my newsletter. I do a once a month, um, the first Sunday of every month, I send out a newsletter called Soul Fuel. And Fuel is an acronym for fascinating, underlining, experiencing, and listening. And I give everybody examples of, you know, what what's my rocket fuel? What's my soul fuel? And I also talk about what, you know, the projects I'm working on, uh, retreats I'm creating, all that good stuff. So it's the best way to keep in touch. I want secret information. So what would people never believe about you if they read the book? One thing, well, 10 things, but I want a secret <laughs> scoop. What would no one believe? If they, if they read the book? If they read the book, even if they read the book, what would they never believe to be true about you? That I really am a deep introvert. I don't even think it comes out as much in the book as I wanted it to, um, or as I'm realizing now, like how much I actually love my cocooning and my refueling yeah. time and all of that. Yeah. You know, maybe in wrap up the, the sort of memoir revelation that comes out of that is that most people assume that to write a memoir, to write nonfiction, you have to be extroverted. In fact, the, opposite is true that in the writing process you have to go in in order to come out and the vulnerability on the page is the most difficult work for the writer until marketing begins and uh, I think that's the misnomer of memoir is that we want to sell our story so of course we must be these extroverts so for me it's glorious that you said even though you wrote a very extroverted style coaching change the world memoir you had to go deep into your inner work and acknowledge your introvert in order to do it and i think that means that memoir is relatable for everyone no matter how your presence in the world comes across thank you yeah well said so thank you thank you so much shelly for your work that you're doing you know it's mm. it just um I resonate with it deeply. And Patty, thank you for being here and for introducing me to your friend Shelly. And I look forward to connecting and hopefully we'll have something formal that we can let people know a way that they can connect with you mm -hmm. in the future. So thank you, Shelly and Patty. Thank, thank you. you. As you're listening to this series, you may be thinking that you have a story you would like to tell. And I want to encourage you to check out pattymhall.com and look at Patty's work and talk to her about how she can support you in that journey from wanting to tell your story to published author. Patty has a real gift and has worked with a number of people on getting their books out into the world. And if you're interested in starting to look at how you can align your life so that it reflects what's most important to you, I call that soul-centered living, please check out my website, sandyreynolds.com, and look at the support that I have in place to help you make that journey so that you too can have a life full of purpose, passion, and meaning. Thanks for listening this week, and we'll be back next week with another memoir writer who has a story that is so incredible, I think it should be a Netflix series. See you then.